0: Good morning. Hey, are you guys not just thankful for our worship team? Would you just thank them? Yeah. Guys, thank you so much for the way you serve us. We are honored. Well, you can be seated if you'd like, or you could just stand awkwardly the remainder of the day if you'd like. (laughs) Uh, I'm A.T. Hargrave. I'm uh, part of the teaching Team, one of the teaching pastors and the director of Destiny Christian Leadership Institute where we seek to raise up leaders who know the relevancy of Christ to all of life. It's an honor for me to be able to teach. I was asked to teach on this Sunday and uh, we're in the first 40 days in which we go through our five core values. It's important to remember something about a core value. A core value is different than a priority because priorities change. Core values are those things that never change. That's why they're core values. So if you would, would you mind saying this with me? Would you put it on the screen, kind of in a a statement that we've put together? Would you uh, say this with me together? We are outrageously loving people who passionately pursue the Lord with an irrationally giving lifestyle as we consistently submit to God's desires and effectively disciple others to do the same. Now I just want to say I, I was thoroughly... Unimpressed with what you just did? Uh, would you stand with me? Let's say this again, and this time, like you, you actually mean it. Okay, we? we are outrageously loving people who passionately pursue the Lord with irrationally giving lifestyles as we consistently submit to God's desires and effectively disciple others to do the same. Amen. You can be seated. Now, I did not help. I'd have anything to do with that, but I can tell you this, um, got an earring here. Crafting a, a statement like that uh, is not easy and there can tell a lot of hard work went into that and so taking it seriously is important. I have uh, irrationally giving. We've covered outrageously uh, loving and passionately pursuing and this week is irrationally giving. If you have your Bibles or your phones, if you wanna take them out, it'll be 2 Corinthians chapter nine. I'd also like to add that um, Pastor Lawrence has put together about five to eight minute videos uh, on each of these core values online, and I highly would recommend you would go and listen to the irrationally giving one. Um, he gives some great examples, some, even some practices him and Tracy did with their kids around the dinner table that are just, it's just powerful, so I encourage you to do that. You can go to the website and find them there. All right, let's dive in here. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Start at verse six. Paul writes, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. If you make notes in your Bible, the word cheerful in Greek is uh, hilarios. It's where we get the English word hilarious. God loves a cheerful giver, a hilarious giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor as righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. I want to read verse 11 again. You will be enriched in every way. Why? To be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Let's pray. Lord, we just stand before your word and we ask that um, your word would examine us, that by your spirit you would come and meet with us deep unto deep and take the words um, and, and do what only you can do with that scalpel-like precision. Uh, Holy Spirit, I, I am not, I'm not smart enough or gifted enough to change people's hearts. That's your work. So I yield myself to you as fully as I know how, and I pray that you would move among us. We pause, Lord, and we pray for the, our children and those serving them. Lord, I pray that you would give our children a heart to know you and to walk in your ways that they would see your beauty and desire to gaze upon it all the days of their life. Bless those who serve them. And Lord, in here I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. There are really uh, three aspects of communication. And a communication can go wrong at any one of those three aspects and it can go bad fast. You have the the transmitter, the person transmitting the message. Then you actually have the message itself. That is what is actually said and communicated. And then you have the receiver who is hearing it. And at any one point in the communication, things can go wrong, it can go comically wrong. I grew up uh, singing the hymn, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. Anybody else grew up singing that song? It was considered the national anthem of Christendom. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Uh, Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. And I remember thinking as a seventh grader, eighth grader, I I didn't know angels had prostates. (laughs) And why are they falling? What did they do? That's terrifying. You know, is there not a urologist in heaven? Uh, Or even growing up with Deck the Halls. You guys remember? Dawn we now are gay apparel. I remember in the eighth grade going, is that like Christmas in drag? I mean, what is that? (laughs) Dawn we now are, I don't don't even know what that means. It's, it's, that's on me for not understanding what those songs were saying. And getting song lyrics wrong and misunderstanding them can be comical. But it becomes more severe. The consequences become more severe when we begin to misunderstand and misapply the scripture. And I find that there's, around this issue of giving, of tithing, of offerings, of being generous, uh, a lot of misunderstandings. Look, every church needs to be talking about how we steward our resources, especially in a world that is just constantly bombarding us with uh, temptations of greed and materialism. This temptation to somehow um, secure or possess our own security through wealth. Where, where we, uh, money can become an idol, so to speak. It's very important that we address it. So every church should, most churches do. But then the real issue becomes how does a church and how does destiny address it? What is it that we appeal to when we talk about giving? Let me give you three things often appeal to. The first one is we often appeal to good feelings. To emotions good feelings are are good that's not a bad thing that's the way God created things to be and there's a good feeling that comes with giving but if we're not careful that can be a part of this uh self-help self-actualization culture where really it means feeling good is synonymous with being happy and being happy is, becomes the main aim of every human being so that can get lost in there but then we can also appeal to emotions and good feeling by, by participating in meaningful work. There's nothing more uh, 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 deeply satisfying than knowing you are contributing and being a part of a community that's doing meaningful things. So I could get up here and I can tell you about all the good things that destiny does. Seriously, the, the hundreds of thousands of dollars that destiny has invested in this community over the years. Even over the last year. I can tell you about the, the um, furnished apartment that we have for, for women and families trying to flee domestic violence situations and how, how surprised I am personally at how much that's being used constantly. I can tell you about the cars that we've given away. I can tell you about um, how we get thousands of dollars, thousands upon thousands of dollars worth of groceries the moment the pandemic began to happen in the summer of last year. I could give you all of those things and that would be a good thing. It's a good thing to participate in good work, and it produces good feelings, and that's not bad. The problem is that will never be enough to sustain a lifestyle of generosity. So then I could appeal to avoiding negative consequences I could tell you, hey, giving is a great way to, to avoid the destructiveness of, of greed and materialism. Or if I if a more legalistic approach, some churches would say, we don't, but some churches would, you can avoid God's wrath by giving, All right? Like God's standing over you watching your checkbook, just waiting to see what you do. But that is an appeal to Fear. And that is motivating you based on negation. How do you negate these things? How do you avoid these bad things from happening? And it cannot sustain a lifestyle of generosity. For in order to sustain a lifestyle of generosity, you have to always have the presence of the punisher. Then I could appeal to the flesh. I could tell you how the Bible tells us and teaches that those who give to God, God gives back. I could tell you about how God has promised to bless his people And I can quote certain scriptures to you that would encourage you to give in such a way that you'd get back. The problem with that is, you see, is it appeals to the very thing that the Bible is trying to deliver us from, and that is our flesh. So though the first two may, I mean the first one may be good and and right and lovely, the other two, let me put it this way, none of these three are able to sustain a life of generosity in the spirit of Christ, in the character of God that we see expressed in the person of Jesus Christ. So the question then becomes what is it that we do appeal to? How do we approach giving? Well, as we will see, Paul in this text makes his first, not only appeal, but his first appeal to the saints about giving is based directly on the truth, on reality. Paul begins his conversation about giving with a discussion about reality. For coming to the truth and aligning with the truth is the only way to sustain life. For truth sustains life. So let's talk about what Paul starts with. Paul starts here with a principle out of nature you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. Just as Jesus did, uh, often did, uh, Paul is pulling an example and a principle that we see in nature, which in theological terms is called natural law, an appeal to natural law. But he's given us just a general principle that every farmer knows. You don't sow corn and wait in anticipation for cucumbers. You You don't sow wheat and wait on watermelon and are disappointed when watermelon doesn't show up. Built right into nature is the principle that you reap what you sow. In fact, in Galatians chapter 6, Paul writes this. Uh, verse 7, he says, if we skip to verse 7, he says, well, there it is. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Now I just want you to pause. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. You are deceived if you think you will not reap what you sow. I, this was a lesson for me in parenting. When you are teaching your child deception, if you teach them, they have no consequence for their actions. You are deceiving them. That's not the way the world really works. But that passage, let me give you some good news here. That passage is actually saying something do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you will sow, so you also weep. If you sow the flesh, from the flesh you'll reap. From the Spirit, you'll reap the Spirit. Do not give up in, in your good deeds. Do not give up in your good works, he says. In other words, listen. It mocks God for you to sow good things and not reap good things. And God will not be mocked. If you are sowing these things, then it would not, don't be deceived, God will not be mocked. What you sow, you will reap. But the context is, yes, he mentions sowing in the flesh and the spirit, but the context is, do not give up on your good work. That God will bring a return. So it's important that we get this idea of sowing and reaping so that two questions emerge for you that you might ask yourself. What are you sowing? And to what degree are you sowing it? For that text, Paul says, if we go back to it, he says this. To the, it's not just that you reap what you sow, but he takes a very general principle, agricultural principle, and says this. To the degree that one sows is the degree that one also reaps. He who sows sparingly, that's a degree, a measurement, will also reap sparingly. To him... Uh, who reaps or sows bountifully will reap bountifully. To the degree that one sows, one also reap reaps. And this applies in all of life. It applies to farming, to investing, to relationships. If you to the degree that you will sow love, listening, kindness, fidelity in your relationships, the greater the opportunity for a an healthy and enriched relationship. This works in all areas of life. In, in investing, would you rather have 10% of $100,000 or 4% of $500,000? You'd rather have 4%, well, maybe, if you want more on your return, you I mean, more money. You'd rather have 4% on $500,000 because the issue was not the return. The issue was the measure that was invested, the measure sowed. And that's what he's saying, to the degree one sows, one reaps. Interesting, isn't it? Jesus actually said the same thing in Luke 6, 38. Jesus said, given it shall be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together, shall it pour over in your lap, for the measure you use will be the measure back to you. Interesting, isn't it? What are you reaping, or what are you sowing, excuse me, and to what degree are you sowing it? But then Paul takes this natural principle that we, that we see in nature, sowing and reaping, and he adds revelation to it. He's gonna reveal something about God, and that's why it's revelation and not just a natural principle. And his revelation gets to the heart of what it means to be a, a cheerful giver, the secret of cheerful giving. He's, the revelation is this. God desires and has designed this principle of generosity to work best when aligned with one, the core of who one is, Their heart. He says in there that we are to give as one has decided in their hearts. In other words, cheerfulness comes as our generosity is aligned with our hearts. In other words, there's a lot of reasons why someone might practice sowing and reaping. But cheerfulness in giving, cheerfulness of heart, only comes when our inner motives of the heart are aligned and integrated with our actions. In other words, cheerfulness doesn't come when you sow in order to just reap. Cheerfulness comes when a heart is filled with generosity and we love to express it in our acts of generosity. Now this brings up a good question that Paul actually answers. What are some reasons that people would give when it's not in their heart to give? Well, he gives you two. Paul briefly mentions two things, two reasons why people might give when it's not in alignment with their hearts to give. Reluctancy and compulsion. Do not give under reluctancy, being reluctant, or out of compulsion. Now what does that mean? To give reluctantly is to give somehow not not confident in your giving, not sure that you want to give, not sure that this is a decision that you want to make. Perhaps you don't trust the other, perhaps you're not sure if you have the resource, whatever it might be, but either way, the will of the giver is not confident and feels pressure to give. And this does not produce a cheerful giver, for it's not aligned with one's heart. This is often what you experience when you're getting pressured by a salesman. Right? That reluctancy, like, all right, I'll just, I'll buy the thing to get you off my back. But this also happens in relationships. Right? The unspoken rule in marriages. I have to give two to get one. I'll be nice and sweet. I'll give you words of affirmation, and, right? Um, I'll give you quantity time and quality gifts. I'm just joking, that's not what they are. It's quality time, but you know. How I'll give you two, I'll meet your love language twice, three times, four times, because I know that's how I get one. Like, I'm actually not doing this because I love you, I'm doing this because this is the game we play. This is the contract. I gotta do two, three, four, five nice things to get one back. Well, that got quiet, didn't it? Okay. That's giving reluctantly. Or another one. He doesn't want us to give under compulsion. Compulsion is that feeling like I have to in order to avoid something or order to obtain something I think is out of reach. Giving, um, this is often felt when we're told that God will get you if you don't give. This idea of trying to avoid something or, or even like it's, it's well out of reach. I, 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 I don't see how my, uh, my life of... Um, a provision is going, but, but God, you know, I read the passage about if I give, God will give back a hundred times, and so I give under compulsion, hoping to obtain something I, I think is already well out of reach. That's being under compulsion. When you're motivated to avoid some sort of pain or obtain something that you're afraid you're never gonna obtain, that's not generosity. That's an attempt to save your life, and according to Jesus, it's actually a great way to lose your life, is to give under compulsion. So reluctancy and compulsion are ulterior motives that if we're not careful will rob us of the joy and the cheerfulness of heart in giving. So now I want you to pause and think about the problem now that we have in this text. There's a natural law, you reap what you sow, and to the degree that you sow, you reap. That's like this natural principle. If you don't break it, you break yourself against it, like gravity. Here it is. Then Paul gives us revelation about God. God actually has designed this to work best for you to be the most fulfilled, most deeply uh, cheerful at heart when your generosity is actually aligned with what you've intended to give in your heart. That's what God wants. Okay, great. Now then, anybody else see the problem? (laughs) What do I do if there's not a lot of generosity in my heart? (laughs) Right? If all of a sudden I'm always in... um, under the influence of sowing and reaping, and I don't want to give under reluctancy and compulsion, then how do I have a a generous heart? How does God form in me a heart that longs to give? Well, that's actually what Paul addresses next. The secret to a generous heart, the Christian generosity, and a cheerful heart is summed up in three little words that Paul mentions here. First of all, God is able. God is able. The foundation of Christian generosity, that is the foundation of generosity in the spirit of Christ, is not founded on how much money and resource you have or what you do for a living. The foundation of Christian generosity and joy is founded on that there is a God who is good and he's actively working in the affairs of ordinary affairs of human life to orchestrate things for my good and for the good of all. That's where Paul starts. The good creator God, the same one who spoke the world into existence, is at work in the world on my behalf to bring about uh, uh, provision and protection and to provide, to bless, to give me favor. That's where Paul starts. How do I have a cheerful heart? You start by having a clear vision of who God really is. God is able God is able. Now this is actually very irrational to the world. You're telling the world, give because God is actively involved in your life. Yeah, right. But when you see it properly from inside the kingdom of God, once you come to know who God is and what he's like and the nature of his kingdom, this reason for giving is delightful, cheerful. Not only that, it's rational and consistent with the kingdom of God. So it's irrational to the world, but it's consistent to the scriptures. And so let's look a little bit at the particularities of what Paul says here as we move along. God is able, right? That's the first thing he says. In other words, that our cheerfulness of heart, our cheerfulness in giving does not come from our ability to make money or to manage the outcomes of our lives, but rather that God is able to provide and manage our well-being regardless of what other people choose. I can't tell you how important this is in relationships, all right, so you're, you're, you're wanting to have a cheerful heart and give, but you're also wanting the other to kind of give some things back. How do I trust God with the other? Trusting that God, no matter what the other person chooses, God can orchestrate my needs being met regardless of what the other person chooses. See, that frees me by having to manipulate and spin and, and work and give under compulsion and reluctancy and try to put my fingerprints on it and manage it myself. Listen, even if you were to be able to manipulate someone, to love you in a way, to get all your needs met, it wouldn't satisfy because you would know at the end of the day, you're still the one manipulating. it. It doesn't actually meet the need. So our confidence in His God, good nation. So here's the question. The fundamental question of generosity is not do you have enough resource to be generous? The fundamental question is do you trust that God is able to provide? That's the fundamental question Paul brings up about generosity. Not what your bank account says. Not about what you anticipate about the future. Not how the stock market's doing. Do we trust God to provide? So tithing, for example, is a practice of reminding ourselves. Not only is God able to provide, but tithing is a reminder God has provided this is why, listen, tithing never requires you to give something you don't have. It requires you to give out of what God has already provided. Because the point was to remind ourselves, all that I have came from God. It's not that I'm trying to build my confidence that God will provide, though that's true. It is that I must recognize God has provided. That's where we start. And that's where we start to, in order to become a cheerful giver. Now, some of you may think, all oh, right, it's easy to think about God being good when I think about how God is infinite and all the rest, and he may be good to provide for people, but that brings up a secondary issue, if we're honest. God may be able, but is God willing to provide for someone like me? You see, Paul here, when he states God is able, he's also implying that God is willing. The willingness of God is implied in the statements here by Paul. For Paul is keenly aware of the human condition and Paul now begins to speak to the heart of the matter, to the voice that really fuels our uncertainty to trust God. Am I worthy? Yes, God may provide for Jesus. He's like Jesus. Yes, God may provide for the apostle Paul or someone holier. Will he orchestrate ordinary human affairs for someone like me? And Paul's answer may surprise you. It's not only that God is willing. It is that God is glorified when you live counting on him to come through for you. In fact, God desires you to live in such a way that he can come through for you. That God, it glorifies God when we arrange our lives in such a way where if God didn't show up, we look like fools. Now, I'm not talking about, I'm not, I'm not talking about making assumptions or look there's a story about the guy who waded out in the water to, until he died and he left a note on the beach saying God told him to walk on water right there's a point where the water like hits you nose you go maybe I miss God and you go back and restart over <laughs> I'm not talking about presumption here I'm talking about obedience there's a difference but responding to God God's good care So let's look at a a couple of things that I just want to make some disclaimers, I guess. This, God is glorified when we live and trust in his provision, but one of the disclaimers I want to make is this. God is not asking us to live in poverty. He's asking us to live in trust. There are some people I've met who need poverty to trust God. (laughs) Like the moment they get stuff, they no longer trust God. But that has more to do with their heart and attitude than it has to do with the um, nature of poverty and possessions. There's the, great, uh, the wisdom uh, in the Proverbs, there's a man who makes a, it's not Solomon, it's a, he's given another name in the book of Proverbs, who prays a prayer about, Lord, not, don't let me be too rich that I, may, that I will be, uh, start to trust my own riches, nor let me be too poor that I may be tempted to steal and curse your name. Like, there's a point in which neither poverty nor possessions is the issue, but our hearts. And how do we live in trust of God? So let's look a little bit at God's promises because this is why it's very important. If you're claiming one of God's promises or you're, you're b- relying on God for something that God hasn't promised, God does not like have to come through. Just heads up on that. <laughs> now, it's important that we get some things right. Look at what he promises. God promises this promise of sufficiency. In verse eight, God promised that you will have all sufficiency. That is all that you need. He doesn't promise you'll have big barns. He doesn't promise to have a 10 year supply. He doesn't promise to have enough in retirement for 30 years. He promises to supply all your needs at all times or in all circumstances at all times. But anybody else want like barns? <laughs> Can we be honest? This is what Jesus was getting at in Luke chapter 12 when he said, Consider the ravens, consider the birds. His point, they sowed and they reaped, they, they worked and they had children and little birds and all the rest, but his whole point was they don't build barns. They rely on God daily. And then he, then he brings it back to the question of self-worth that haunts us all. How many birds are you worth? Are you not more valuable than birds? Or do you not see that God values you more than birds? And If he does that for birds, he'll do that for you. You see, this is hard for us, isn't it? We want barns, we wanna build big barns and then look and fill them up and then we'll turn and praise God because we got big barns. (laughs) Give us today our daily bread. I would like, Lord, give me today my 10 year supply, I'll steward it, I'll be responsible. That's not how he works, he promises sufficiency. That's the promise of God. Sufficiency, again, all you need in all circumstances at all times. Now listen, if you have all sufficiency in all things at all times, here's then here's what you need to know. That actually is abundance. It's just not storage. But it is abundance. See, it, it would not be difficult, I think, for, would it not be easy to be um, free in our generosity that marks the spirit of Christ if we really knew that we had this undiluted, um, unexhaustible resource that flows to us from the Father. I've used this analogy again but uh, before here, but if you wrecked your car, totaled it, and it may be a big deal for you, but would it be that big of a deal for you if your father was Bill Gates? Well, we have a father who, is bigger than Bill Gates, who created the world, who spoke things into existence. But here's the issue that we have to wrestle with, and I would really want to confront this morning. This abundance that God promises in all sufficiency has a divine purpose. We have to get to the purpose of the promise of sufficiency or we may misunderstand and misapply it. So what's the purpose of abundance? Paul gives us God's purpose behind it by saying this, that we might abound in every good work the purpose and aim of God's promise that you will have all sufficiency in all things in all times is not so that you can build big barns, not so you can get all the material things, the materialistic world tells you you need in order to be successful. He give, make promises you, you'll have everything you need at any moment in your life so that you may abound in every good work he's called you to. You see, the promise of sufficiency is tied to his divine purpose. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 2 that you were created in Christ, uh, his workmanship created for good works in advance. God has something for you to do, to partner with him in, to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And listen, whatever God has called you to do by his grace, he will supply whatever you need. So listen, if if you're out there on the limb with God and he doesn't seem to be providing, pause for a moment. Right? He tends to do things pretty dramatically. He tends to like, end suddenly he does stuff, so watch out for that, right? But, But not only that, it could be that you've missed what he's asked you to do. I remember Dr. Brad Jones, we had launched some ministry with the church and it wasn't producing what we thought and I went in with him and said, what do we do? And he said, well, there's only two options. Either A, God's going to come through and he's asking us to believe and hold on. Or two, God's called us to do something else and we missed it. And he'll give us grace and we'll join him and he'll provide for that. It wasn't, maybe God's not faithful. (laughs) Just let that sink and shape your life. That God promises sufficiency, but his sufficiency has a purpose, right? You are never going to lack what you need to obey God. That is why it is never a true statement when someone says, well, when I have more resources, I'll tithe and be generous, which is just another way of saying I haven't gathered enough to obey God. Well, let me ask you a question. If you're not obeying God now, then who are you obeying? Jack Taylor used to say, an idol is anything you need to ask permission from in order to obey God. Do you need permission from your bank account to obey God? Do you need permission that the from the future, some promise that all the future is going to be okay. Do you need Do you need a 401k to be big enough in order to obey God? Do you need the other person to do all the right things for you to obey God and living generously towards that person? See, this kind of cuts to the heart of the issue, doesn't it? Now look, this is just as uncomfortable for me as it is for you. So, <laughs> I hope you know that. But look, at the heart of the cheerful giver is a vision of God as good and able and willing to arrange the circumstances of my life to supply a need, what I need, which enables me to live cheerfully, even irrationally to the world, generous lifestyle, accomplishing his purposes in the earth. So let's just kind of look at the nature and call of a cheerful giver as we begin to land the plane. We begin to land the plane. Don't want to manage your expectations. First of all, Paul's, what he's trying to teach us is this. Our generosity reveals our confidence in God. Jesus' first and primary teaching concerning faith in God was connected to God's providing for your natural human existence. Consider the ravens, consider the birds. Why do you worry about what you're gonna eat or the wherewithal you're gonna be clothed? Well, you have little faith. Jesus' first mention of faith in the book of Matthew is about trusting God to provide food and clothing. And he continues to do it. Dallas Willard said this, uh, Jesus connects faith with provision because it is very difficult to trust God for our eternal salvation if I can't trust him for a sandwich tomorrow. You're telling me you're gonna stand before God and put your eternity on the line, but you're not sure if he will help you with your utility bill this month. All right, well, cool. Look, there's a time in my life, as we all have, and several times in my life, I'm not the only one, where obeying God, particularly in tithing, meant I may not have enough money to pay for diapers. And I can tell you this. What brought me to giving cheerfully in those moments was not the wonderful things my church was doing. It wasn't that God would double my blessing and give it back to me later. It was remembering that even what I had was because he was faithful. And that I have an opportunity in this moment I will not have in eternity. And that is to trust God with my tomorrow in the middle of uncertainty and risk. To bring honor and glory to him in a way I'll never be able to do in heaven because we'll not have this kind of uncertainty and risk. Our generosity is grounded in who God is. So when walking in the truth and the reality that Paul is putting before us here, Christians are empowered to live radically generous lifestyles, not because it may evangelize to the world, though that's true. Not because there's some law we must adhere to if we want to avoid God's punishment. He he encourages us to be radically generous, not even in order that we might get more blessing or wealth, though that may result... Rather, Paul is trying to help us see when we come to see God for who he is and what God is doing, when we come to see the way that the nature and the economy of his kingdom of God works, we can't imagine living any other way than radically generous in a world filled with self-centeredness and obsessed with their own security. We live a radically generous life because it is the one that displays the faithfulness of God and who he's always been. And that's why I just wanna conclude with the practice of a cheerful giver. To give cheerfully, one must constantly remind themselves, which is, again, is exactly what I wanna to talk to you briefly about when I talk to you about tithing. This, irrationally, giving is not about tithing, though tithings included, it's about a whole lifestyle. But look, if we can't do tithing, then we're foolish to think we have a lifestyle of generosity, right? It's like the person who can't fast from a taco for a day, but somehow they're going to die a martyr for Jesus. It's like, yeah, you may start with a taco before you get to like, you know, burning upside down on a cross. I mean, all right, sorry, my sarcasm came out, sorry. Look, the practice of tithing frees and protects our souls from the lure of this world to trust in our own strength. It protects us from the temptation to set aside what God has revealed to us in the scriptures in order to try to secure our lives by our own strength. So it is a constant practice of remembering that our provision, what we have, has come from God. And remembering, my friends, is actually how faith grows. You grow, part of growing in faith and trust is hearing of the word and remembering of the word. Remembering. And so here at Destiny, we try to make that as easy as possible. If you've noticed, we don't pass buckets. Tithing is something that comes between me and God. It is an act of worship, but we do have a responsibility to teach, to direct, to point it out. So there's a couple ways I just want to say briefly on if you're wanting to tithe or start tithing, or you're wanting to have a life that that practices radical generosity, if you want to start practice tithing so that you can lead to a deeper trust and intimacy with God there's several ways to do that. One is you can go straight up to the website destinyokc.com. You can't miss it. There's a big old square in the right corner that says give. You can download the Destiny app. And at the bottom of the app there's a little heart sign that just says give and you can click it and give. And it'll take you to the same place the website will take you. Or you can text give to the number on the screen 405-584-5767. And it will send you a link, and that link will take you to the same page the app and the website do, if you want to give. That's made easy. Now look, I just want to say in our day and age, it's easy to, to give and put it on auto-draft and forget about it. But if you're here and you're struggling with tithing, and you're struggling to trust God with this kind, this, this cuts deep with people. It gets really personal. And look, I just want to say, sometimes one of the best practices that we can do is actually bring a bring something weekly in our hands. And maybe during worship, you go back to the giving station and you do it as an act of worship unto the Lord. Lord, I am trusting you that what I have has come from you and to what I have tomorrow will come from you. And you give. Look, auto-draft is not a bad option, but I'm just saying, if you need to work on it, then we work on it in our relationship with Jesus we don't just manage systems around us which we don't have to become more intimate with God in order to practice. All right, that's tight but right, and you know it. So when we understand Paul's theology and the vision of God and what the kingdom of God is really like, really debates about tithing go away. Because it's not a because of law that we give, but because of grace. We are generous with our resource, our time, our energy, and our money because we are freed by the love of God from the compulsion of the world to try and provide and protect ourselves. We are truly free because God is God and because God is faithful to keep his promises and because he's good. And what this ends up doing as we practice this is it frees us to be the kind of giver whose left hand doesn't know what his right hand is doing because our practice of generosity has become so integrated into who we are we can do it without thinking much about it. How do you know how do you not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing well thinking about what your right hand is doing is a great way to let your left hand know what it is doing Imagine driving a standard and you're going to turn left and you click the blinker down with your left hand, you downshift to third gear and you make the turn and you click the blinker off and you put it back and forth. You did all of that without thinking about it. Your left hand didn't know what your right hand was doing because it was integrated into your body because you became practiced at it. Radical generosity, and a rational lifestyle, when it becomes integrated into who we are, our left hand doesn't know what our right hand is doing because it becomes out of our nature of who we are, we do not have to think much about it. Listen, it's the same way. You know you're, become, you're, you know you're beginning to conquer sin, a specific sin, when you no longer feel like you're missing out for not doing the sinful thing. That's a huge step in the right direction. Listen, you know generosity is being integrated into your heart when you're no longer concerned about the things that money could have been used for. Or I could have done this with that. Well, I need to... Uh, Land the plane pretty quick. But listen, to withhold being generous today because of some fear about tomorrow or the future is to presume that God won't be there with you then. It is to live, a, it is to live as if God is trustworthy sometime. Right? But you know, I, it is also to live as if I'm more reliable than God. I don't know if God's going to be there, so I better take care of myself. Well, my question would be why do you trust you? <laughs> All right, well, that went over well. (laughs) Now, look, I'm not saying these things because destiny needs your money, but rather because God wants your hearts. I'm not saying this thing in order to increase offerings. I'm saying these things to help instruct us in how to be people who love God with all that we are and all that we have. Well, one last point, and I want to end. Paul mentions, he gives seed to the sower and bread for food. When God provides for you, he will provide certain things for your needs, and he will provide into your care certain things for your stewardship and investment. Every farmer knows you don't eat all your seed or you have nothing for the next year. I just want to encourage you. Don't eat your seeds that God gave you to sow. And don't plant your bread that God gave you to eat. There are certain resources God has provided for you that is to meet you and your family's needs. But then there's a whole bunch of stuff God's given to your care that he intends for you to sow generously into the things that he's doing around you. If you think once you've given 10% of your uh, income, the other 90 is yours, then you don't understand tithing. Nor God. Nor what God has done for you. I remember... An old man in my life one time said, I was asking, do I tithe on the net or on the gross? <laughs> and he said, it just depends on how much of God's money you want to keep for yourself. I do will sober you up real quick. But that's his point. It's all God's. But here's the point. This is, this is what I, we have to get... Um, Paul, in fact, in verse 12, I didn't read it, he calls this a ministry. God gives you certain things to sow because God has engrafted your obedience and your generous lifestyle into his unfolding plan and how he intends to reconcile all the world to himself. Your obedience is not just about your standing before God and whether or not you're in the, how many checks you have in the positive and negative column. Your obedience is about God wanting to accomplish his mission and he has given you such an honorable place and that he's invited your little life with all your little resources into his unfolding plan to make all things new. Now let me ask you a really frank question. What are you doing with your resources that is more significant than that? Are you telling me missing out on partnering with God and seeing his will be done in the earth as it is in heaven is worth the frail security you feel when you have a savings account? Listen, I'm not talking about being irresponsible here. I'm talking about seeing your life And everything that you are and have has been caught up in God's story and purposes. And he can call whenever he wants. He's given you things to eat to meet your needs because he's good. But he's also given you things to sow because he intends for you to have a significant part of his will being done in the earth. Don't eat the seeds God gave you to sow and don't plant the bread he gave you to eat. Know the difference. So this is not, I need to end, this is not about God wanting your money or that giving is just another way of protecting ourselves from greed. It is that our lives, our talents, our choices, our resources have been integrated into God's story. It is though our lives and our obedience somehow God intends to use for his will to be done on the earth. This is true, I just to give you, for those who may, oh Lord, I do need to end. Okay, well, look, uh, to give you a biblical reference for the scripture, in, in, in Genesis with Abraham, God promised him in chapter 12, all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. This is what I'm going to do to you. Later, he calls him, if you remember, to offer, offer his son Isaac. How's that for irrational generosity? And he puts his son on the altar and raises a knife, and God stays his hand. And this is what God says, Abraham, because you, because, everybody say because. Because, because you have not withheld from me your one and only, your son, your only son, I will make you a great nation. He already promised it in chapter 12, but when he offers Isaac, all of a sudden it's because of Abraham's obedience. This is what I'm saying. Somehow, in some way, God has already decided to integrate your obedience into what he's doing in the earth. This is the part we get to play. So, sowing and reaping supplies. Let me just end with this. Um, if tithing is something difficult for you or living radically generous, I just want to give you the, the 24-hour approach. Can you live generously? Can you live trusting God and live generously for 24 hours? Then just do that. And then tomorrow, wake up and do it again. Because look, no one chooses to live a generous life. We choose one moment at a time to trust God and be generous, to trust God and be generous. We wake up the next day and we trust God to be generous. We live the next day, we trust God, and we be generous. And when we look back on our life, we start to have a lifestyle of generosity. But you don't decide today to have a lifestyle of generosity. It's one moment at a time. Look, let me end. Just after 9-11, President Bush stood up and gave a public speech. And in the wake of all that terror, one of the things that he said was, let's not let terror win. Go shopping. Now, obviously, the economical fallout of a terror attack was a very um, significant threat. But I want you to think about what that means theologically, philosophically, and personally for you. Don't let fear win. Use that debit card. Maybe let me rephrase it. Show Show the world who's really in control. Go spend your money. Americans in the West spend their money as a way of feeling like they're in control of their lives. We assume because we have the choice between a Sony flat screen and a and a Panasonic that we're free. That because I have the choice between an iPhone and an Android, I have liberty. But it is all deception, is it not? Because look, as Christians, we are a people who live out of control. Because we know we belong to the one who is Lord of all. And our lives are no longer our own. And so managing the outcomes of our lives is not our goal. Our goal is to live in faithful, confident trust that God is able to do all that he has promised. Listen, if there is a people that must get radical generosity right, it is us no one can do it in the way that we can do it, and that it is grounded upon who God is and what God is like to us. Would you stand with me? Your GP2RL, your God's presence to real life is this. Would you take some time this week to evaluate where you are sowing your attention, your time, your energy, your money, your talents, and your resources? Is it where you intend to sow it? What does it reveal about your priorities? And if one looked at what you were sowing into, would they conclude that you have a strong confidence in God? But I just need to, I need to pray and conclude. I, I apologize for going along. Let's just pray. Lord, we stand before your word and we confess that it is true. So Holy Spirit, would you come and take the words that are true? and cut them deep into our hearts and transform us where we can be cheerful givers who live irrationally giving lifestyles because of our confidence in you. May you and your ability and willingness to provide for us, your faithfulness to us, be the core and the center and the motivation of our cheerful, joyful, irrational giving lifestyles. We thank you for this, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a moment, would you? And let's just worship a God who has promised that we'll have all sufficiency and who has been faithful to provide for us. Amen.